probably the first episode of Sancho's Boys that you're listening to. This is your co-host, Tim Amatuli. And I'm Chris Gote. And we've reached it. This is the first truly, truly big one. We've had some big ones, but Rashomon. The big one. Rashomon. The only one that I heard of <laughs> before we came in here, except for like a kind of Seven Samurai. The only one, for sure, that I watched before coming in here. I looked it up today. I watched it on March 5th of this year. So just 10 days before the world descended into hell and we became this. Before life became Rashomon and every day kind of felt the same but a little different. Yeah, 10 days before that was when I first saw Rashomon. And thinking back on it, I did not know what the fuck I was watching <laughs> at the time. It makes a lot more sense now and I'm excited to talk about it. I've seen Rashomon a few times and I gotta say watching it after watching every film of Kurosawa's in order, I got a lot more out of it than I ever did previously. It's always been one that I've highly respected, but never really was the one that I would go to if I just wanted to watch a Kurosawa. Yeah. And then now I feel like with all the research and all the watching that we've been doing, I took away so much more from this than I ever have previously, which is awesome. That's wonderful. Yeah. You've come to appreciate it. Our new listener can appreciate it too, I hope. Yeah. Uh, welcome to the podcast. We have been joking since the beginning that everyone's going to tune in for this episode. So if that's you, welcome. <laughs> And we hope you like it. Listen to the Sanshiro Sugata Part 2 podcast, and then maybe there's one other good one in there. But I like that one a lot. And then by then, you'll, you'll get him. <laughs> yeah. Just watch the Himbo Chronicles. Yeah, the best <laughs> one before this. <laughs> That's not true at all. Actually, Sanshiro Sugata Part 2 does have a Rashomon effect to it, because you, you keep watching the same stuff, and you don't know what's happening. <laughs> the pre-Rashomon Rashomon. Much like Rashomon, it's totally fucking nuts. <laughs> and there's no concrete plot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the very dreamlike. So, Rashomon is based on two short stories by Ryunosuke Akutagawa, Rashomon and In a Grove. And he's considered, in the Donald Ritchie book, he kind of equates him to sort of a Japanese version of an Edgar Allan Poe, if that kind of puts his kind of writing in perspective. Interesting. It makes sense in terms of what you see in the movie. Yeah, and like the subject matter and things. Yeah. And so this story is a union of the two of them together. In a Grove is the one that follows the thief, the samurai, and the wife, and Rashomon is the one that follows the conversation at the Rashomon gate itself. And initially, Kurosawa was just adapting In a Grove, and it didn't really make enough for a finished screenplay. There wasn't enough story in it. When he added the Rashomon short story to it, they meshed perfectly, and he said everything just suddenly clicked. Like the Rashomon gate itself, things just kept getting bigger and bigger. And he said it initially started as like a really small shrine gate, the scale of this project in his head just kept growing and growing, and it became this enormous thing. It, you know, it's broken at the top. He said that they literally couldn't put any more weight on it, otherwise it might collapse. Oh, shit. <laughs> so that's a reason for why it's actually damaged. I mean, it's just a, such a cool detail anyway, because it's an awesome image. Oh, it looks awesome, yeah. And this is honestly one of the most influential and important films of all time. It's the film that really introduced Japanese cinema to the West, won the Grand Prix at Venice Film Festival, which... Kurosawa didn't even know it had been submitted. King. King of not knowing. <laughs> not knowing he's winning international awards. Yeah. King of not knowing things and making amazing movies. King of not knowing that he's making film history and changing the entire, like, dynamic of the industry. So, like, it was at the festival. Someone was there representing it, maybe. It, it was there. It's, it's winning. He's just like, what? What's going on? <laughs> the studio behind this film, Daye, is the one that he made The Quiet Duel at. Oh, he said that they really didn't like it. They didn't understand it. They had <laughs> they had difficulty really knowing what project they were financing. Classic. 
the executive producer really wasn't crazy about the final product, but then he said after it won these awards, he watched TV and the executive producer's on TV taking all the credit for everything, and he's saying how beautiful and genius he thought it was, and he's like, I'm having my own Rashomon effect, where this man definitely said that he hates it. Yeah, he, he said it sucked. <laughs> And said it to my face, and then now he's going on claiming it because it's making him look good, and he's like, it's just proving the thesis of the movie. It's insanity. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No, that's that's perfect. Oh man, that's that's extremely funny to happen to this movie. This is the episode I've been probably the most scared to get to. It's going to be tough to cover, but we're going to try our best. We'll do the plot summary, but is there a plot? Yes and no? Well, uh, humans are fallible, as as you will learn. <laughs> Yeah, we are going to do a plot summary just to keep informed with every other episode of the podcast, because it would be weird to not include it. Don't worry if it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> Beneath the Rashomon Gate in Heian period, Japan, a woodcutter, priest, and a commoner discuss a grisly tale of rape and murder, which the woodcutter stumbled upon three days earlier. A samurai and his wife were traveling through a forest and passed the famed thief Tajimaru. He ties up the samurai and rapes his wife, but the details about what happens afterward are unclear, as each side tells a different story in court. These testimonies include Tajimaru's, the wife's, the samurai spirit, and the woodcutter's, who had secretly witnessed the events in question. Each story varies wildly in such a way that it makes the speaker appear in a positive light. After the entire story has been recapped, the trio at the Rashomon Gate discover an abandoned baby, and the woodcutter takes him in as his own, restoring the priest's faith in humanity. So yeah, that is what happens, but... <laughs> but what really happens? Well, what really happens in the film is that you see all that happen, but what really happens in the story of the film is oh i have no idea <laughs> and i still don't <laughs> after watching it twice because there is no answer and that's the point yeah because truly he will not tell you and i i like it and maybe i didn't like it the first time i don't remember but i like it a lot more this time i'm like good i'm glad i don't know what the fuck happened it is essential i think to go into rashomon knowing that it is not a murder mystery and it is not a courtroom drama even though we said last time in scandal you know this is kurosawa's only courtroom drama i was like well rashomon is kind of like that because it has so many courtroom scenes it involves a courtroom and is a drama it isn't about trying to place guilt honestly everybody confesses to the murder which is crazy yeah. But you have to realize that it isn't about trying to understand who actually did it. It's about trying to understand the psychology of each person and why people do the things that they do. It really isn't a film that should have a plot because it's all about philosophy and ideas. Yeah. And that I think becomes clear over the course of the film. You definitely like realize you're like, oh, we're not going to learn what's going on. Like you can tell that it's about something bigger than just a story of this bandit who rapes this woman and kills this man or something. I think that becomes the most clear when the wife's story happens because it varies so differently from Tajimaru's. Even though all of the stories have some similarities and differences, but it establishes that there's a wide chasm between all of the stories. There's pretty much two pairs that are similar on each side, and that is what leaves so much room for doubt and why this movie is debated 70 years later. If you, if you don't make it clear, people will have to talk about it and figure it out, but they never will. That's, that's how you build hype. Yeah, and he uh, he did, apparently. Uh, international, world-renowned hype, as he deserved, finally. Even though he didn't know about it. Yeah, he really didn't know about it, which is a king move. <laughs> so we start out in the most apocalyptic torrential rainstorm ever committed to film. Hell yeah. I was also thinking, I was like, you don't see a lot of rain in films, and you especially don't see this much rain ever. <laughs> like A lot of it isn't even water, it's actually black ink, because it oh. shows up better on the film whenever he was filming upwards towards the sky. Yeah, I was wondering how he even did that. I try and take photos of rain, I'm like, it's invisible. 
So uh, can you imagine running through just gallons? An ex- a explosion at an ink factory, essentially. Yeah. I was wondering, like, if they just waited for a rainstorm. They had two fire trucks on set shooting all that rain and actually said that Dye Studios, like, caught on fire and it was perfect because they already had the fire <laughs> engines there. So then they just turned around and <laughs> extinguished it with minimal damage. That's awesome. <laughs> they trashed him and Kurosawa saved their ass. Yeah, that's awesome. I love that little <laughs> anecdote. So, yeah, okay. Yeah, disgusting. How did they clean that yeah, up? <laughs> how did they let them put that in the fire truck? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they can't, they can't be good for it. This is somehow worse than it just being real rain. Oh, we used... Uh, the rain wasn't thick enough, so we used gasoline. Yeah, it was blood. Uh, it, it was blood. <laughs> <laughs> no, he uses that technique in Throne of Blood. You're thinking of Throne of Blood. <laughs> oh, okay. I mean, yeah, yeah. You can see how I'd get confused. <laughs> so, yeah, it starts off with a classic kurosawa thing which is to have the opening credits over just shots of stuff mm. which he loves doing but unlike most films it like actually the shots are changing lots of the other movies it's just like a thing it's the puddle and drunken angel it's the dog and stray dog but this it's like every little which way you shot the ground the arch whatever and they're all part of this like long extended title sequence but i thought was cool and it's all different parts of the rashomon gate that has been destroyed in an unnamed fight this is taking place in the Heian period in Japan, so there's still a lot of warring going on. This is his second, like, real period piece. Centurion Sagata 1 and 2 are, like, kind of a period piece in that they're, like, 40 years, 50 years before the present day. But this is, like, way before. I believe Kurosawa says that this film takes place in the 11th century. Okay, so very similar to The Men Who Tread in the Tiger's Tale, which takes place in the 10th. Which is way different than most of his films, which the majority of which have been, like, modern pieces up to now. A lot of people only think of Kurosawa as having, you know, samurai films and period pieces. He, like, only made stuff in the present day for a really long time and continues to keep alternating to it. We're going to see modern day pieces all the way to the end of his career. It's not just period pieces. He just loves making period pieces. But these period pieces are important because they are reflecting social realities in Japan, the history that has formed their nation. Yeah, of course, as like any period piece should. Absolutely. That was actually the first thing I noticed on my rewatch was the first time I watched this, I was like any person who was unfamiliar with Kurosawa. And then I was like, oh, I guess this all is par for the course. It is a uh, samurais. This is all normal Kurosawa, as far as I know, from my like broad impression of him. <laughs> and then I watched all his movies and I was like, this is nothing like a normal Kurosawa. <laughs> like, this is all crazy. <laughs> it's crazy how different this is yeah. and just how much more in control of his vision he feels. Yeah. The directing behind this film is incredible. He has such a strong vision for what he's doing and the way that he moves his camera. Absolutely. The all-star cast that he has assembled for this film, Mm -hmm. these are all Kurosawa regulars for the most part. That's the second thing I noticed. The first Kurosawa appearance of Machiko Kyo, another one of the biggest Japanese actresses who mostly worked with Kenji Mizuguchi. She's the main spirit in Ugetsu, so she's got two of the biggest, most important Japanese films of all time on her resume. Queen. Whereas Toshiro Mifune has about 800. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's... (laughs) And actually, Takashi Shimura has even more. Yeah. That was another thing I noticed on my rewatch, is that immediately upon seeing Takashi Shimura, I was like, oh, he's more important than the other guys, because he's Takashi Shimura, and the other guys aren't. Hell yeah. (laughs) Which is something I had no idea the first time. I was like, who are all these people? I have no sense of any of this. But now I was like, oh, there's our boy, Takashi Shimura, somehow. Why are two of these characters the most insane characters on Celluloid? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I guess we should talk about that. That is um, what happens in the beginning. We see the woodcutter, Takashi Shimura, the priest, and the commoner who are both wild. (laughs) I don't even really know what to say about them. The commoner is coming in as our viewpoint character, essentially. He is the only person in the entire movie that has no 
prior knowledge or relationship to the events that have unfolded. Yeah, he's the one who keeps saying, oh, tell me more. Oh, tell me. Yeah. And he's expressing thoughts that we might be having as well. He's like, well, how could it be so different? Oh, of course, they're saying that women are weak or men just naturally lie. There's no such thing as goodness. How could the dead man tell his tale? Yeah, which is insane. Yeah, totally. It's crazy. <laughs> like, I was just accepted. Boy, would that make things easier. Yeah, right. And then apparently you do it and it doesn't even help you find out what happened. <laughs> As I always mentioned, I'm reading the Donald Ritchie book along with other ones throughout this whole thing. And this chapter is like at least twice as long as the longest chapters that he's written. Nice. And half of it is him just trying to decipher what might have actually happened. When he gets to the stuff about the samurai and the medium, he's like, we can just throw all of that out because there's no way that's possible. And I'm like, huh? That's not how it works. <laughs> you can't. He says like, okay, we're not actually going to do that, but... In the real world, quote unquote, we probably wouldn't take that as an actual valid thing. Because what? who's to say it's not a totally different spirit or whatever? And I'm like, okay, Boomer, but calm down. <laughs> yeah, calm down. I don't buy that story for various other reasons. Not because it's a medium. I think the medium was doing her best. <laughs> what happens at the gate is that we learn of this murder, as we were saying. Yeah, they really hype it up. I had did not notice that the first time how he was like, this is the most horrifying thing in the history of every story that has ever been told. No story has ever been more horrible than this. When I say that, I include famine and war. I was like, whoa, really? <laughs> I remember it being like kind of dramatic. And then he's like, okay, here's what happened. A man killed someone and raped his wife. The commoner's literally like, what? <laughs> like, are you kidding? <laughs> the priest started going on with some platitudes. And then he was like, listen, dude, I'm fine with you lying to me as long as it's interesting. Just don't bore me. <laughs> Yeah, the commoner is like, that's literally the most boring thing I've ever heard. The fact that someone killed someone and raped this one. He was like, dear God. Uh, so it was extremely... I love that. I, I actually like the commoner a lot. And they were like, but wait, it gets more interesting because their stories are different. Because they lied. And that, I mean, that does make it more interesting, including to the commoner, but <laughs> that is the plot of the film. Yeah, I do love that the very first time where he's like, yeah, a murder happened. And the commoner's like, I don't give a shit. That a murder happened. Yeah, like, this guy has probably killed multiple people. Like, yeah, he was like, there's six dead people on the roof of this building. The character that the commoner is in, in a grove, is actually, like, a woman who steals hair from corpses and makes wigs out of them and sells them. Oh. In the end, they steal her clothes and say, <laughs> like, oh, I make my living by selling people's clothes. What's different about that? And it's like, what? Okay. <laughs> That's very upsetting, uh, but cool, I guess. Kurosawa's like, I think I'm going to change this one a little bit for the audience. <laughs> Maybe not have the wig snatching. Maybe he's just a petty thief. They established that this is essentially a frame story within a frame story. Yes. Which is unusual for Kurosawa to have a framing device at all outside of like visual things, right? Yes. Yeah, definitely. The cuts are very harsh and deliberate in this film. Yeah. Constantly taking us essentially through different timelines. Like, we'll suddenly be in the forest, then we'll be at the gate, then we'll be in the forest, then we'll be at the court, then we'll be at the gate, and then back in the court, and then in the forest. Here's a shot of the pond, but, like, in the middle of someone's sentence about <laughs> while they're in court. Those kinds of edits are weird, but I think they're funny. <laughs> I, lo I love those edits. I think they're great. But yeah, no, very back and forth, confusing, but in, in a way that, like, is intelligible. Just uh, more work than usual. It actually reminded me of Stray Dog in that there was, like, montages and a lot of, like, cutting and visual whatever, like... The, the thing that most reminds me of Stray Dog is the first montage, which is the woodcutter going to the forest in, like, a six-minute odyssey of walking through leaves <laughs> and seeing trees and then seeing the sky in this very beautiful, very, I guess, significant uh, to film history. 
He's like, I gotta go get wood for work, and he's walking past all these trees. Yeah, I was like, what, you're going to the middle of this forest to find a tree? This way he has to drag it as far as possible. Yeah, it, it was nuts. It was very much like Stray Dog, actually. It reminded me a lot of the montage in which Chishiro Mifune is, like, trying to be homeless in the city to get a gun. <laughs> it was a lot like that one, just, like, in terms of the rapidity of all the cuts, like, very involved, strange camera things. But instead of being with thousands of people, it was just trees. And one of the most significant things to point out is there's a lot of shots of the sun in this movie coming yeah, through the trees. Famously. That's actually pretty revolutionary. Shooting direct shots of the sun was not a common thing. It was actually kind of controversial to do because people weren't really sure how to do it because they were, there was the thought that it might actually burn the film through the lens. Yeah. Like, there, it was just a thing that wasn't really experimented with. And Kurosawa's amazing cinematographer, Kazuo Miyagawa, has so many incredible compositions in this and really had groundbreaking cinema affecting work in this film and a lot of it is on display right in the beginning i think we should establish before we start really hitting everybody's stories there are definitive things that are agreed upon in this film the point of it is that we can't really take anyone's word but there are things that are not contradicted by anybody so i think it is safe to say that the woodcutter is the one that found them, or at least we find out he found them at different times than he actually claimed, but he is at least someone that showed up and went there in the forest. And we can believe that Tajimaru's story of how he kidnaps the two of them is true because no one ever discusses it. He definitely leads the guy off, he definitely ties them to a tree, like that's all true. All of the controversy that comes from people's discussion is based on what happens after the rape not before the rape yeah which also side note no one seems to care about at all in terms of like it being a crime they're like mad at her they're mad at the moral implications but they were like yeah yeah. i was like oh sucks the woodcutter claims to find the body and then this it's already unclear he does find the body that's pretty certain but like he finds other stuff too i think the hat is agreed upon does he find a sword on his walk-in i forget it's the dagger that's the object that comes into question later on He is the one that brings things to the police Mm -hmm. along with the priest. That is what arranges for the whole court thing. There's like a quick little thing with how Tajimaru actually gets captured, which is weird and kind of establishes the way that the next hour of the movie is going to go. Yeah, the he gets captured by this guy. Sorry, he just like is kind of just like shitty. I just don't like don't like this guy, this character, the one who captures Tajimaru. He's just like very servile to the court and like, yeah, aren't I such a good boy? And he really bothered me. He's in the movie for like 30 seconds. I know, but I hate him. <laughs> uh, he's like this guy. He, uh, he's like, yeah, I captured the great Tajimaro. He was like having a panic attack on the grass by a lake. When I see him on the beach, I immediately thought of, oh, that's just like in Drunken Angel. And he finds himself on a beach in a casket. And it's super weird. It's very Stars Episode 5 in Dagobah, but whatever. Yeah, in that amazing scene. Yeah, an amazing scene. But that was my immediate thought of, oh, Tashirumafune is once again having a total meltdown on the beach. His character has a total meltdown. In every scene. Every time he opens his damn mouth. It literally, I think, and this is kind of a, a general slight complaint I have about the whole movie is the overacting that everyone is doing for a lot of the part, uh, for yeah. a lot of it. But I think that Toshiro Mifune saw Takashi Shimura's performance in Scandal and said, hang <laughs> on, I can't let Takashi Shimura have a crazier character than me. So I'm just going to play the most batshit bandit in history. Completely. Just screaming, laughing, like freaking out, doing like a weird, like a click. Like, weird, like, clicking sound? He's always kicking his legs. He's always slapping his neck, because, like, there's bugs, which there never are. Yeah, which is so 
disgusting to me. We've talked about how Kurosawa characters have defining movements. That's like his defining one is that he slaps or that he suddenly pulls swords and then just starts laughing hysterically. Yeah, I gotcha. The wife will just drop down to the ground and cry and <laughs> and the husband will sit there and do nothing. Yeah, the husband will sit there vibing <laughs> for like no reason. But yeah, we are introduced to Tajimura, the insane bandit, famous womanizer, famous swordsman. Apparently. Famous swordsman, even though that comes into question later in a way that I'll talk about. He gets captured because he drank water from a stream that was possibly poisoned by a snake. And he was having a really bad time on the grass. But according to the guy who captured him, he was like, oh, he fell off his horse like an idiot. And Tajimoro is like, no, actually, you're the idiot for thinking that happened. That's not what happened. You like absolute buffoon. Yeah, exactly. And it's immediately like, well, now we actually don't really know. We already don't even know the most basic part of this story of just this man getting captured by an officer of the law. Someone that should be a more reputable source of information. I think with all of these stories, you kind of have a tendency to believe the first thing that you hear and then you start comparing everything to other things and be like, well, that doesn't make sense because that's not what I actually heard earlier even though the second thing could be the one that was true. Yeah, I, I found myself doing that with Tajimaro's story. I was like, oh, that must be true, right? Because we just saw it. Yeah, exactly. That's the whole thing about cinema is that you see what happens. And how could it be wrong if you saw it? <laughs> but that is the entire thing this movie is putting into question. Yeah, but then you see something totally different at the exact same time. This is already like the first example of that happening of just like we immediately believe the police officer because why would that be wrong? But then he says it and it's so different. And it's like, why? I... Uh, why would he lie about it, I guess? That's really the thing about this whole movie is why would anyone lie about the things that they're doing? Because they're all saying that they're guilty. This is not a court drama. This is not people making a defense for their own actions. They're all saying I did it in a way that makes them more sympathetic or more just really strokes their ego. If I did it, it was cool and totally justified. <laughs> the little thing about Tashimar in the opening scene, he was like, no, I didn't fall off my horse. Actually, I was shitting in the field. <laughs> and like, that's his defense. Which is wild. A little bit of a window into his character. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's what he says. And I was like, okay, thanks. And then he screams. I think there was a, at one point. <laughs> that could be, that's how every sentence ends. <laughs> yeah. He speaks and he screams. There's one cut in which he says, yeah, not selling that gilded pearl blade was the biggest mistake I ever made. He starts laughing louder than he does in the entire film and immediately cuts off like in his laughter. It's like so <laughs> darn. I was like, oh, classic. Oh, yeah. I was like, did they run out of film? Like, what happened? Yeah, right. <laughs> There's another little scene where, like, it's looking at the husband, he's, like, tied up, and then it cuts, but he's just still just there, and it's like, oh, they, like, ran out of film for the shot, so they extended the shot by, like, half a second by cutting to the same exact thing. And a lot of these, too, are not even cuts, these are wipes. You know, Kurosawa's been using wipe transitions a lot, but this is him really using them to have time pass. Yeah. More than just a simple cut would make it seem like these people are talking in the court right after one another, and a fade would just be kind of weird. But a wipe actually really works in this scenario because it's like, who knows how long this is. It's honestly probably the next day or an hour later or something. Talking to silent court marshals that never speak, yet they hear questions and they're like, huh? Oh, I never thought of that. And it's like, oh, that, that's a really cool way to do it. You know, like this film has so few characters. It's actually so minimal, but so effective with what it has. And I'm like, it's literally just them not having a character. It's surprising they even have a policeman. Yeah, and I like that they are talking directly at the camera, but looking like a foot above it. So the audience isn't exactly the court, but we're there. It's just a cool way to have it framed. And the way that the light falls from above them, they're always sitting in shadow where it's, you know, an area that's more murky and harder to distinguish. And then 
Behind them is usually the woodcutter and the priest sitting in light, even though that might not be totally proper. But it does create a contrast because there is a difference between everybody. This one time, Toshiro Mufune is looking through a bush and like lights coming up at him from below. And I guess he was like looking at the lake, but I was like, that's way too much light to ever be coming from that angle <laughs> on Earth. Yeah, this movie makes you feel almost as sweaty as Stray Dog does. Yeah, almost, but uh, almost. Just maybe like half as much. <laughs> half as much, but it's still sweatier than any other film I've ever seen. Oh, God. So, yeah, the first time we actually see the event this film takes place around is through the eyes of Tajimaru. He tells his version of the story, which is, I did everything that we agree upon. I, you know, convinced the man that there was hidden swords in a grove that I hid, and I'm going to sell him sheep. So I made him follow me, and I tied him up, and I took the wife there to see him. You can already start to tell the story's embellished, because I think the first time you really know is when he kisses the wife, and she immediately falls in love with him. Then she's looking at the sky, and there's leaves in the sky, and they start to, like, blur, because she... Is being taken. Yeah, is being taken by this character. Watching that, I was like, all right, all right, Tachimaro, that's you making this up for your own ego. And it should be said, you know, he brings the wife here because he claims that her husband, a samurai, even though apparently a really shitty one, <laughs> is suddenly taken ill. He runs up with her, and then she finds him tied up, and she pulls a dagger on him and tries to defend herself, but he's just playing with her. There's nothing that she can do. And eventually he's able to kind of hold her arm and hold her down, and her arm has the dagger out, and eventually it kind of quivers and she drops it. Yeah, poetically drops it and it sticks in the ground. The hand just slowly starts to move more onto his back, and she starts to... I guess become more smitten with him or just totally become submissive and give in. I think the implication, by the way, Chai, is that she gets seduced in that moment. Because this is Tajiru Maru's telling of the story. He's like, yeah, she immediately fell for me. That's the impression I got from the way it was shot, especially with things blurring and her softening up. I agree with that, but it is, you know, she's looking up at the sun and it's getting more and more obscured by the leaves. It's, yeah, like all the light, like that hope is just all disappearing in a matter of seconds and her face becomes more in shadow. And that's when she starts to give in. He says, like, oh, wow, she was so fierce and everything when he was fighting. And then later on, we're going to see her and she's just hysterically crying. And the priest makes a comment like, oh, she's nothing like what he described in his story. She was incredibly weak and pathetic, honestly. So now we get to the actual meat of the film, the different recountings of what happens on this day and how this man is killed. According to this version... Tajimaro has sex with the wife, and then what she says is, sorry, it's hard to remember now because it's complicated and hard to remember. <laughs> yeah, it's confusing. really hard to remember what happens because you see everything happen so many different ways yeah. that it's really hard to distinguish which way everyone said it happened. But for this one, Tajimaro claims that the wife demanded that the two of them fight because she couldn't have two people know that she has now had sex with two different men. Yeah, you can't both survive. One of you must die. He releases the samurai and they fight for a while. He says he crossed swords 23 times or something like that, which is more than anyone has ever apparently crossed swords with him before. No one's ever crossed me more than 20, which is very self-aggrandizing and I like it. And, and at the time when you see it, you're like, oh yeah, he's a samurai, a disgraced samurai, whatever. That makes sense. Like, that is how people fought. But then it comes back later differently. But yeah, they have this big fight. A cool fight, actually. I think it's like a good fight, uh, which you might disagree with. Uh, it's, it's a lot of rolling around. Y yeah, but not... I don't know. I liked it. I, it made me think of Star Wars, actually, because I'm a dork. Uh, but like, I was like, oh, you don't actually see a lot of sword fighting in any movie. I, I, I haven't. Not even in The Men Who Turn the Tiger's Tale. There's not really a sword fight. This is the first Kurosawa film where swords are drawn. There's a dagger fight in Drunken Angel, but it's even weirder than this one. There have been swords, but this is the first time they really happen. 
the fights that do take place is only, I think, in the first and fourth one, because two of these scenarios that are described don't even have fights in them after the rape takes place. I think the fighting is my least favorite part in this whole movie. Everyone is so bad at it and just always flailing around and has so many opportunities for kills and then never gets them. And they just go on, I think, too long. Like, because, you know what it is? I'm just getting tired because I've seen the same fight four times. Yeah, that's, I can see what you mean. The first time I watched this movie, I definitely thought, wow, that fighting was garbage. What was even going on? Watching it again, I was like, oh, the fight with the wife is nothing. That's just, like, silly. He's just, like, dancing around, like, haha. Then the fight with the samurai, I was like, all right, that seems, like, I could tell that was supposed to be good, I think, by the canon of the film. And the thing that happens later is when Takashi Shimura relates what he saw, the fight's crap. It's, like, total garbage. Like, they're just, like, flailing on the ground and not hitting anything. It's almost like the meme in a, you know, in a, like a schoolyard when people are fighting, but they're actually hitting each other, just swinging wildly in the air. Yeah, th- that's that's exactly what that fight is. Although I do feel like the first fight that's supposed to be good is a little bit too much like that, too. Yeah, I mean, I can see why you think that. Like, they're not as different as they should be. The fight from Tajimaru was not elegant. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the first time I watched the movie, I didn't notice that. I don't remember thinking anything about that. Thinking, oh, the first one was good, the last one was bad. I like, I was just like, oh, I guess they're fighting in both cases. I don't really know why it's happening. But this time, it was a lot more clear to me. Like, that's what was going on. This fight ends with Tajimaru impaling the samurai into a tree stump. By throwing his sword, for some reason. Which doesn't seem like a very secure way to uh, get that dub. You know, absolutely not. <laughs> like, it would definitely just bounce off or something. Like, <laughs> thank God he didn't have like a slight little piece of armor. <laughs> yeah, he's wearing a shirt. Like, thank God he didn't have a chest plate that would have like bounced off yeah. and probably like gone into the it's guy's not, foot. Like, holding a book or something. Like. <laughs> yeah, very strange that he throws the sword. He also does it again in the fourth retelling of the story. Yeah, and then when that happens, the wife screams and runs away, and he can't catch up with her. In all the stories as well, that's another thing that's agreed upon is that the wife does get away. Something happens that causes them to separate, and so she is safe, and they say that the police found her crying at some temple two days later or something like that. So that is agree, but yeah, she runs away, and then that's the story. The The police ask, like, some details about items, which is very strange. They're like, and then what happened to the dagger? And he was like, oh, the dagger? Uh, uh oh, oh, I forgot to get it. That was a huge mistake, and then he laughs. And I love that because Kurosawa is dropping hints about this dagger the whole time. That's the only real piece that matters because the sword... Yeah, he takes the guy's sword, he sells it for liquor, whatever, it's gone. He says that he sold it, but the thing is we never see the corpse. I think that's another important thing. In the woodcutter's flashback, we see hands, but we don't see how he's dead. In two of these stories, he's killed by sword, and in two of these stories, he's killed by dagger. Those are very different wounds. Yeah, which is like a huge difference... That seems something like they should agree on, but they don't, which is very major, I think, in the movie. I have to stress once more, that's why this is not a investigation, a police story yeah. or anything like that, because it's, it's just not about that. And maybe there was a scenario for Kurosawa that would have made a little more sense to do the thing that he's doing instead of a killing that has a pretty definitive... Yeah, it was like, didn't the police see the body? But whatever. Like, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, like, there's little things like that, but if you're focusing on those little aspects of yeah, Rashomon, you're kind of focusing on the wrong things they could distract you for a moment but you just gotta let it go because it really is about philosophy and not about plot it's difficult to separate that especially because all these other films really have been about plot this is the first time he's really experimenting with a lot more literary ideas yeah very abstract in terms of the plot's relation to the meaning of the film this is all you know uh, unreliable narrators which aren't new at the time that Rashomon is being made but certainly aren't common yeah For sure. And, like, not really something that happens in any of his other films that I recall. 
Not at least not like a major part of the story. I can't think of any other unreliable narrators off the top of my head, but I won't I won't definitively say. Yeah, I'm sure someone will fact check us. Someone be like, actually, in Uma, the. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, actually, in Uma. Uh, actually, in the third protest in those who make well, tomorrow. It takes place from the horse's perspective. <laughs> it might, dude. I don't know what. <laughs> yeah, I don't know anything about it. <laughs> I wish I knew what was going on. The I horse wants... talked. Uh, boy, would I love to see that movie. Yeah, even though I watched it, I, or it was in front of my eyes. So speaking of the fact that the plot doesn't matter, we should get through it because there's a lot more of it, and it's gonna take way too long. God, um, yeah. So that is the first retelling of the story in which Tajimura fights the samurai, kills him, and then the wife runs away. And then he's like, well, oops. So then there's a brief scene back at the gate in which the priest says, but wait until you hear the wife's story, which was so different. The wife was nothing like in. <laughs> yeah, because the commoner is like, that's the story. That's so horrific. <laughs> I think that's the point at which, yeah, the commoner is like, I don't like, why would I, why on earth would I give a shit <laughs> that this happened? <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that that is oh, I love that so much. Yeah, that's the point at which the priest is like, but wait, the wife is not at all like what she says in the story. And this entire time, Takashi Shimori is just in the background going like, lies, lies, it's all lies. <laughs> like, and, uh, yeah, he's going crazy. In yeah, he's like walking around, stamping, getting mad, and the comment is just like making fire, having a good time. I think the priest is telling most of this. Not that it matters who's saying. Yeah, it. we we don't know. They're kind of taking turns. I feel like they're playing popcorn telling this story, but we're always hearing it narrated by the people that are actually telling the story in court. Yeah. So we go back to the wife, and she is just hysterically crying in front of mm-hmm. the court and saying all these things. She's exhibiting no strength at all. She's making this story where she is just totally weak and had no say in anything, or had because she was just a woman. Yeah, very sympathetic of her. So she's saying that after the rape, Tajimaro just leaves. So she goes to her husband, who's still tied up and, you know, had to watch everything, which is another horrific part of the story that he doesn't really emphasize too much. Yeah, very horrific. Kind of underemphasized. We've gotten dark stuff in these movies. That is probably the darkest thing that Kurosawa has shot yet. Yeah. She goes to her husband and begs for forgiveness or begs. Yeah, kind of. She is just kind of, I think, looking for comfort from him and he's giving her absolutely nothing. She's like, please forgive me or spare me or kill me. But the only thing he does in, I say, a contestable manner is he just looks at her with, in her words, utter loathing and contempt. <laughs> now, this is the part in the movie where I admit I laughed out loud because I don't think the actor, I don't know his name. I don't think the actor does an amazing job showing this contempt with his face. You see, after like a really long shot behind his head looking at her, it finally cuts to him and he's just kind of has a plain expression on his face. You can tell he's not happy or anything. He's just like... Not really expressing anything, but that is his face of ultimate loathing to his wife, and that, like, destroys her emotionally. She says that this guy thinks she yielded to him too easily, didn't put up enough of a fight, all that. He really is blaming her for her own rape right after he watched it happen, which is really intense. Not totally foreign to the sexual politics of, I don't know, what you might assume sexual politics were. There's like, oh, oh. You hear about women being blamed for their rape in other cases. Yeah. But yeah. like, never it's never so fast, so viscerally right there as it happens. For this man to watch his wife be raped and then blame her for it. Honestly, I gotta say that her story is probably the weirdest out of all of them. Which is saying a lot because one of the stories comes from a medium talking from the dead. That one was actually totally reasonable. <laughs> she is armed with the dagger and she is begging her husband to kill her because of her shame and everything. And then she says that she faints. And when she woke up, 
the dagger was lodged in the guy's chest. Yeah, very unclear. They kind of leave it a little ambiguous that she either killed him in a moment of passion and just totally blacked out, or that she fainted, dropped the dagger, and the man killed himself. Both of those are possible, but I think it is more implied that she killed him. Yeah, it's very unclear. She says faints, but that could be a mistranslation of blackout. I think so. Especially because what's happening in that scene, visually, is the camera's like following her, swaying back and forth. Yeah, it's really uneasy. Moving like in and out as she is having this like total freak out. At one point, her hands go over her face in what I thought was maybe a reference to like Yukioi prints, but I'm not sure. But like a very crazy shot of just her hands like clawing at her own face. And so she's like having a freak out. So it's totally reasonable to think that at that point she might have killed him. She's been through a lot. I'll give her that. Let it not be said that it was unjustified. Just she is going through a freak out and maybe kills him. But she says faints. I think that might be a mistranslation. She might mean like blackout. Just like I lost sense of what was happening. Because faints to us, I think would mean like she passed out. I don't know because, I mean, this is one of the most studied and coveted Japanese films ever. If there's going to be a film that has an accurate translation, I think that it would be that one. I'm basing this off of what I'm actually seeing. And it's the fact that we only see her holding it and then that's it. Yeah, she's trying to give it to him, but then just like holding it towards him. It's very weird. They don't show anything. And so it leaves it up to interpretation. And I think both interpretations are equally valid. And I think the interpretation that he might have killed himself is also backed up by the fact that when the spirit gives his own testimony, he's saying that he killed himself. There is probably pieces of truth in all of these stories, which makes it so difficult to decipher. Yeah, I believe it's this point in which the commoner says, well, now I'm confused, but like, whatever. Like, so it's kind of a, <laughs> like, yeah, okay, so it's a little unfair. I don't care enough to ask questions, but I'm stuck in the pouring rain. In an absolute killer line, the priest says, just wait till you hear the dead man's story. <laughs> the car says, what? He's dead. He's like, oh, a medium told it. <laughs> like, it's just totally like, yeah, that medium told the story. Yeah, and then they just cut to it, and it's like this loud summoning ceremony. <laughs> they cut to it, it rules. Yeah, there's like the medium shaking like a metal rod with chains on it, and there's some kind of scent thing in a bowl and like a little seance. Yeah, there's, there's incense all around. Medium just starts spinning in circles really fast. Yeah, yeah. And actually, the entire time, there's like heavy wind blowing in the medium. Clothing is like blowing up near their face. And if you look in the background, you see the other two guys, and there's like no wind hitting them at all. They are completely still nothing, <laughs> just <laughs> watching the story, kind of dispassionately, considering how wild it is. I'm like, for the priest, this must be great. This is like confirmation of religion. And for the woodcutter, this this must be the craziest thing this man has ever seen. He lives a boring life at home, cutting wood with his six kids. My theory is that, like, it must be not totally unheard of at the time, because the commoner's like, what the fuck are you talking about? And then he's like, yeah, you know, it was a medium. Told the, yeah, like, <laughs> he didn't really, he wasn't like, it was crazy. He was like, yeah, a medium <laughs> related the story of his spirit. In his own voice, which is wild. We have the court medium. Yeah, yeah, the court medium. I think that's really what that person was, which is awesome. <laughs> and then the medium tells the story, and then I think kind of in a little cinematic trick, you really believe that it's not like crack pottery, because the medium is telling the story in the samurai's voice, the husband's voice. Yeah, which is another really cool touch, because the woman who is the actress, we never hear her voice. It's always a dark, ghoulish man's voice. Yeah, like modified too, not just... I was even thinking that, I was like, his voice sounds really weird. It's not like he was just sitting there next to the camera saying the lines. It was, like, recorded in a special fashion. To, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's definitely augmented. And we've hardly heard his voice in the rest of the film to begin with. So we don't have a really great sense of what this man even sounds like, which makes hearing him talk and hearing his thoughts even more haunting. Yeah, shocking. But yeah, then the medium tells the story, and this one is once again different. 
I have a theory that lots of directors, particularly French directors in the New Waves, make movies entirely to complain about their wives. Or, like, make movies in which the only thing the character does is complains about his bitch wife, am I right? It's, like, the entire kind of the vibe of the film. And, like, that is what is happening in this scene. And this whole movie isn't about that, but this one scene is definitely about that. This is the version of the story in which the wife, I think, comes off worst in. Except kind of differently in the end. It's, she comes off pretty bad. What happens here is she is raped, but in this one, she immediately is like, All right, well, I love you and I want to be your wife. And, oh, wait, before you leave, you gotta kill my husband. <laughs> kill this man, kill him, kill him, just kill him like eight times in a row. The subtitle stops giving it to you, even though she keeps saying it. So I always look back and like, wait, what is it again? Tajimaro is like, uh, no. A totally unexpected character move, if we can believe what is happening. But instead, Tajimaru releases the husband. Yeah, well, actually, what he asked is, do you want me to kill your wife for you? Because that's fucked up. He holds the wife hostage, essentially, and saying, hey, dude, what do you want? The medium's voice says... For her words alone, I was willing to pardon his crimes because he claims that he was so hurt by this. Well, I mean, it's pretty hurtful when the wife says, please kill this man. He says that's like the most painful thing any human in history has ever heard. Yeah, I mean, I believe that. That's rough. He watched his wife get raped and then say that she loves the man that did it and wants you dead. Yeah, and then also, just for good measure, please kill my husband. <laughs> He's just so destroyed by this. And he, like, basically completely forgives Tajimara in the moment. And she escapes. Tajimara runs around for several hours and then comes back and lets him go. And then he's like, uh, yeah, good luck. I have to figure out my own destiny now. And then walks away. We once again look over to the wife's dagger and the samurai takes that and impales it into his own heart. There's kind of a beautiful moment there where he's like, then the forest was quiet and I heard someone crying. And who's the person crying? Oh, it's me. Or he doesn't even say it's me. You see him crying uh, suddenly. Another really cool touch is that the medium says that he felt the dagger removed from his chest from beyond the grave, which kind of implicates the woodcutter a little bit because not only may he have stolen the dagger from the scene of the crime, he may have literally pulled it out of the man's chest if he was even killed by a dagger and not impaled by a sword. Who knows? Yeah, you do hear that very strange line, and I felt it remove my own heart, which, yeah, I guess implies the woodcutter. So yeah, that is the third, and that's like the third official one, and you think it's all you're going to get, and I think at this point you're kind of like, well, I don't know, <laughs> um, those are all very contradictory. I don't think it's any coincidence that the camera is putting us right below the court, because we are in the process of trying to judge everything that's happened and psychoanalyze all of these characters. Yeah, absolutely. But then they go back to the three dudes just vibing in the Rashomon gate. The commoner seems to be having fun. The woodcutter is once again just getting mad and being like, lies, lies, it's all lies. He wasn't killed by a dagger. He was killed by a sword. He's pacing back and forth really, really rapidly, which is something that a lot of Kurosawa characters do when they're feeling anxious or worried. The commoner is like, oh, you saw it happen. He was like, uh, yeah, I saw it happen and I didn't want to tell the court. The woodcutter never admits to some of his wrongdoing, but he doesn't deny it when he's accused of it, which you can interpret to mean that it did happen because the commoner will eventually be like, oh, so you stole the dagger and that's why it wasn't there. And he never says, no, I didn't because he doesn't want to lie anymore, but he doesn't want to say yes because he doesn't want to implicate himself because he feels so guilty. But at this point, it is revealed that he saw the crime, which isn't really a crime in itself, but he also feels bad about that. He didn't want to tell the court what he saw. He didn't want to get involved. But then we're given the fourth account. And I like this one the best, actually, because it's the one in which everyone looks bad. You know, normally, you know, there's the rule of threes. And then when you get a fourth one, it's like, oh, this must be the actual truth. But what about this movie that's happened prior would lead you to believe that you can now actually trust this dude? He is just another one of these unreliable narrators, which is cool because you think like, oh, now we're going to know what happened. 
No, we're not. If anything, it's going to muddle it even further because of how different his is from all the others, and yet how it bears striking similarities to everything, too. This one follows the basic plot of Tajimaru's story, kind of, in which, like, they fight, essentially, is the main difference. In that there is death by sword. But this one starts with Tajimaru looking like a simp for saying, like, I used to just do crimes and not care, but now I think I love you. Can you please be my wife? Like, I'm begging you. Yeah, he's like, I will stoop as low as to selling pottery on the street to take care of you, and I have a lot of money. I'll give you all the money I've stolen. If you don't want the money I've stolen, I'll make more money. (laughs) He's a hustler. Yeah, huge simp move, though. But then the woman says she can't decide. It's impossible. She's just a woman. And then throws herself on the ground and cries, and then demands that they sort it out. She frees her husband and wants the two of them to fight, and neither of them really do because... Well, they look at each other like, uh, why? Like, (laughs) yeah, and then... Yeah, like, aren't really sure what's happening, and then she goes on, like, a huge, crazy monologue about how they're not real men. Yeah, there's a brief moment in which the husband's like, I'm not gonna fight for you, I hate you now. The husband still blames her for being raped. Tajimaru says in court, when he's testifying, that he didn't want to kill if he didn't have to. And so now that he's being forced into a fight that he doesn't really want to do, he's like, why should I do this? Neither of them are invested in this fight. And she's saying, like, real men would fight for the woman that he wants. Yeah, but the guy essentially is like, "Uh, no. And then she follows Tajimaru, and then he's like, back away from me. Like, I also don't want to be with you at this point. And that's when she has the craziest (laughs) freak out of the film, maybe of all time. Like, a really insane freak out. She starts screaming and, like, laughing. It's actually, it was... I was wearing headphones when I was listening to this movie, and it was painful to hear. I was watching it on surround sound, and it was painful to hear. Yeah. Actually, I thought this was actually one of the weakest or least clear parts of the film. They're kind of like, okay, I guess we'll fight. Like, this forget works, and they agree to fight, and they do. But it's very different than Tajimaru's recalling of the fight in that this fight sucks. I don't know how this guy was a samurai, because I have not seen worse swordplay. That was what I was like, is this what Kurosawa is saying about the entire history of samurai fighting? Is he implying that, like, they all were just hucksters and they sucked? Or is this just, like, the woodcutter? Uh, no, because every other samurai film, they're really badass. Yeah, yeah, I believe that, but I don't know. At this point, this feels like the most objective telling of the story, but it's just so weird. These guys suck, they can't fight at all, they're, like, flailing on the ground, missing. And finally, after, like, an extended bad, awkward fight in which they both lose their swords... Tajimaru kills the husband. In the same way that Tajimaru described before, another impaling into a tree stump with a sword. Throwing his sword. And then the wife runs away, and then he kind of, like, just trips and doesn't get up for a while and lets her get away. Yeah, like, fails to get up. Yeah, which is weird. He's almost like in the paint in Drunken Angel. Yeah, I I think he's just exhausted from running around so much and everything that's happened on... This is the opposite of One Wonderful Sunday. Am I wrong in thinking that it feels like the most objective telling of the story, even if it's not? I don't think it's supposed to be, but it feels that way. Your brain kind of makes you think that it is, but it's not, because it's actually no different than anybody else. Because this establishes him not as a person that wandered upon the scene of a crime. He is an active participant in that he's playing the active observer. Okay, interesting, yeah. He is now a party to this crime, but never wanted to admit it. And so his view is as distorted as everybody else's. Yeah, and he, t- he lies to himself by saying, you know, I didn't want to get involved. That's why I didn't tell the court. Because it, it is fucked up of him to not tell the court what he saw. Yeah, and, and to steal stuff, we find out that, yeah, his initial story is a lie. And even if you believe his credibility, it's immediately undermined by the commoner who's like, you might have fooled the court, but you didn't fool me. You stole that gilded blade. The commoner is just roasting him, and then they get interrupted by the sound of a baby crying. Yes, and what is 
one of the weirdest reveals. There's just a baby on the other side of the gate, like around the corner. The camera moves for like the first time, I think, in one of the gate scenes that actually moves to like follow them. Mm-hmm. Where it moves all the time in the other stories. And and this is a Kurosawa addition. This is probably his most significant addition to the prose that he's basing the film on. Is this not in the Rashomon story? Yeah, to the Rashomon story and the In the Grove story is the addition of this baby that's wrapped up in a kimono for safety, for protection. We don't know why it was left there. It really doesn't matter. And the commoner just steals it. <laughs> the commoner immediately steals its clothes. And it's because it's really valuable. And the priest is so horrified. The whole time, this priest, he's a pretty minor character, but I, I still think pretty important. Oh, definitely. He's showing a side of the story. Because he's contemplating all of the goodness of man and having faith in people. And then after discussing everything about how horrible people are and how they lie, rape, and kill, to now watch a man who's just heard everything steal the clothing of a newborn baby and run away, it just utterly devastates him. And he's just holding the baby as it's crying. I actually love this scene. The commoner's like baffled as to why this is even considered a crime at all. He's like, it's a baby. I'm taking his kimono. He doesn't need it. And then the, both the woodcutter and the priest are like, this is the most evil thing I've ever seen. He's like, people do this shit all the time. Like, you steal. I, that's when it's revealed that he stole the blade. It's a very interesting scene about morality. And I actually kind of found that I was agreeing with the commoner. I was like, yeah, I don't know. The baby's already abandoned. Although the commoner says, look, what I'm doing is not worse than what the parents of the baby did by abandoning him here. And like, you gave me a look. Uh, the listener can't see this, but Tim gave me a look. I, I think, you know, what he did was fucked up. I don't think you should be agreeing with the commoner that... I would hope that if you were in this scenario, you wouldn't do that. No, I wouldn't, but, but like, I don't know. I think he makes a credible argument as to, like, why would you care more about this than about any of the other awful things that are happening? It's in character. It's definitely in character for the commoner, because he just has, like, yeah, men suck, men are men lie to each other, they're weak, nothing matters. He He essentially just takes a totally nihilistic view of people. The priest is so horrified by that. And the priest, I think, kind of gets tripped up. He's like, well, they left an amulet for protection. The camera's like, yeah, okay. And then that's like the only defense. Yeah, but, well, I mean, we did just see a medium. There are spirits. That amulet might actually help. Yeah, yeah, but the commoner doesn't believe in that. And then we get the very end of the movie. Yeah, the woodcutter. It's kind of weird. He doesn't ask for the baby. He just tries to rip it out of the priest's arms, which is not the most tactful way to do it. Yeah, the priest immediately distrusts him. And I think it's implied because he just learned that the woodcutter stole the dagger. His opinion of the woodcutter has really soured after everything that he's just heard. And everything's happening to them so fast. And this really hurts the woodcutter. Takashi Jamora, I think, shows how hurt he is by the priest's new opinion of him. He does feel terrible. He is a more human character than all the other ones that we've seen so far. He has a little inkling more of a desire for truth and everything. He tries to take the baby, and the priest has a really hurtful line where he says, What, are you trying to take what little it has left? Yeah, like the baby's actual clothes supposed to the kimono that it was wrapped in. Yeah, and then he says, you know, I have six kids, which I'm like, wow, that's crazy already. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> I have six kids. One more doesn't make a difference. Like, he's just asserting, he's like begging him, please let me do something good. After all the bad I've just done, I just want to do something good and take this baby home and, and give it protection and everything. And the priest hesitates, but then says, you've restored my faith in humanity and hands it over to him. And then the rain stops, a very poetic Kurosawa touch. Another very Kurosawa thing, coming full circle, we starting and ending at the Rashomon Gate, starting in pouring rain, now ending in sunlight as Takashi Shimura walks towards the camera with a newborn baby, and a bit of a smile. He has regrets, but he's now feeling that he's doing the right thing, and can atone for it, and the priest just stays at the gate. Yep, perfectly framed. And now we've officially got to the end of the plot summary, and we're only an hour and ten minutes in. Yeah, I don't know, oh my god. 
this film is so much harder to review and talk about than normal because there's a lot of things I normally would kind of intersperse, but there's just so much interesting stuff going on here. You know, th this whole film kind of falls into the uh, Japanese philosophy of wabi-sabi, which is one that embraces natural imperfection. You can see that in certain types of wares made in Japan. It's kind of how they're painting the characters themselves, that men are naturally lying to themselves and always distracted by egoism. The film doesn't negate the existence of truth, but merely asserts that it's almost impossible for a human being to find it. Even after death where there's no more stakes, the man is still lying. Yeah, the priest is really upset about that one. Like, he can't lie, he's dead. And it's like, no, he can lie, everyone's still corrupted. Yeah, there's the statement, dead men don't lie, but maybe they still would. Yeah, and it's basically, you know, imply that he is. Once again, for his own sake, we're all kind of corrupted by these human influences, I guess. There's definitely a lot of philosophy going on in the film, mostly in, like, the conversation between the commoner, the woodcutter, and the priest. The, I guess, top layer frame story is the most Greek chorus-y, you know, philosophical discussion. They're very, like, Bergman-like characters, actually. This film feels a lot like what would go on to be Bergman films, in which, like, these characters who are normal people having, like, philosophical discussions, kind of, in these, like, beautiful settings. I don't know. That was something I noticed. Mm -hmm. And actually, my shot will be about that. One thing I noticed in this film is that the music is much better integrated with, like, the visuals on the screen in a way that I don't feel like we've seen before. Specifically, like, there'll be music playing, and then something will happen on screen. One example is the woodcutter, like, trips, and the music, like, gets surprised, and, like, you hear, like, a sting for the music, which is, like, very different, I think, than what normally happens in these films. I think the music in Rashomon is phenomenal. Yeah, I agree. I think it's a great effect. I love the music in this. I think it's the first film that we've gotten that's really gotten a recognizable main theme that's integrated throughout. We kind of hear similar motifs playing throughout. Yeah, there's like music for the woodcutter's journey that feels like little journey music, like the da da da, like walking in the forest, and then it gets interrupted by like scary things when the things are frightening. I like the music, I don't know, reflects the story a lot. Definitely new for him, but really effective, I thought. This film, it just feels so much bigger and more fleshed out than every other one we've gotten. Even if it's much smaller scale than a lot of the films we've actually seen, the way that it kind of break down Kurosawa in my head is that there's pre-Mifune, Mifune, and then post-Mifune. But in reality, the way that a lot of people break it up is pre-Rashomon and post-Rashomon. After this, we are just seeing a totally fully developed filmmaker at the height of his talents, mostly. I think that this film is the embodiment of another major Kurosawa idea of illusion versus reality, one that we have talked about a bit and we've seen in a lot of his other films, all yeah. the way going back to Sanchiro Sugata, what he thinks fighting is versus what judo actually is. Now it is the epitome of illusion versus reality. It's literally now the reactions of five people and their stories and then the reality of the rape and murder. Because something did happen. It is undeniable. All we know is there was the rape, and this man is dead. That's it. That man died somehow. There is a definitive way that he died, but it is imperceptible without concrete evidence. Humans are completely fallible, and there's just no way to know. And like much how you were saying there may be no way for humans to understand truth, there's no way for us, the audience, to like get the truth of this scene. It isn't possible through the medium of these people, which is very rare on film. In a way, the film itself is acting as a viewer telling us what happened, and is in total control of its own narrative. If this event was real, it may not be portraying it properly, because it's just another one that isn't able to pull that off. It's a crazy idea, and I mean, really shook the world that a film could do this to people and instigate so much debate. 
the best analogy that I've seen for this film is actually integrated into the blocking of it itself. There's a lot of triangles in this film. It's all centers around trios, primarily. You know, there's the group of three at the Rashomon Gate, and there's the group of three in the forest. They're usually standing in a triangular formation as a result of that. Yeah. And there's even that really cool moment where we're constantly going into different two shots, and we're going kind of around a triangle. Oh, yeah, yeah. A prism takes light and then both reflects it and refracts it, and it bends the light and makes it come out differently. That's what this film is doing with reality itself. It is reflecting reality, it is showing us, the viewer, something, but it's also changing it and warping what happened into something that's slightly different, if also the same thing. And that creates debates like we're having now, where it's just so difficult to talk about it and understand it, because by its nature, that is what this prism does. That's just, like, inescapable, I think, in a way. I think we should talk about our favorite shots now. So I went through a few decisions from our favorite shot. I was debating one in which you see the husband through Toshiro Mifune's arm in, like, this crook. Then immediately it changes to, like, he's just scratching his neck and you don't see it anymore. But I couldn't find that shot. And also, like, I more so just, like, like that scene. I don't think the shot itself actually really conveys anything interesting. So the shot that I end up picking is one early on, one that's really funny when it happens in the movie. It's the scene which the kind of cheeky police officer who I hate, he had just captured Tajimaru. But before that, you see Tajimaru riding on a horse through this epic landscape. It's these clouds on the top of the frame and the bottom of the frame. And there's this light pouring through the middle. And in the bottom, you just see the horse and him on it, just like riding along really fast. I think sped up even. And it's supposed to be like this goofy little thing, but it's also like extremely beautiful at the same time, even though it's like a two second throwaway like gag. And I really loved it. And actually, what it reminded me of immediately was uh, The Seventh Seal by Ingmar Bergman, which oh, involves yeah. a very similar shot of having like this huge sky with the dance of death happening with like the silhouettes in the background. So like, well, visually it reminded me of that, but also it was just this incredibly beautiful, almost like throwaway shot just for that. I can't really infer much meaning out of it. I don't know if there was supposed to be much meaning outside of cinematic flexing, but it was just, it was wonderful. And I, I thought it was just great work in Kurosawa's part. I am curious if Bergman saw it and that inspired, I don't know. I, Cause I don't think I've seen many other films that have this very specific huge sky and then really tiny silhouette in the background. Yeah, really tiny sliver of land. And it's cool cause this shot really stands out because it's not in the forest or at the Rashomon gate. It's one of the very few times we don't see either of those. I, like, totally forgot that there was ever anything that was remotely like this in the film. Yeah, I saw it. I was just like, whoa. It is super pretty, and it re honestly reminds me of that Drunken Angel beach scene also with the way that the clouds are and the way that the light comes in. We mentioned that earlier. It definitely reminds me of it. Also, how does this even happen? How do you get clouds like this? This is bullshit. I don't, he just gets lucky because he's the god of cinema. He controls these things. I chose... It really, this shot is in the film a thousand times, but it is the shot of the sun coming through the leaves. One of the most iconic and important shots in the film. But the reason I like it is for the philosophical element behind it, because I've always interpreted that as being truth itself or reality itself. Yeah, I buy that. That makes sense. And that it's coming through the trees, but it's always being broken up, coming in in different beams, or it's just obscured. That's the thing, is that there is no denying that the sun is there. We see it, we experience it, we know it is there, but we cannot see it. We cannot fully perceive it. And I think that it's another one of those shots that just sets up the main themes, symbolism, and ideas of the film incredibly well. And it's something that's so simple and done to such an amazing effect, and it just reminds me why I love Kurosawa so much. 
No, I think it's a perfect shot to pick for this movie. Perfect shots and a perfect leading man, Toshiro Mifune. Yes. Is it time for oh, yes. everyone's favorite bit? The Toshiro Mifune hotness scale. And boy, is he sweaty. He, yeah, hotness scale, not in that way, but uh, geez, he is a sweaty, hairy... <laughs> if we're measuring how hot he was doing this... Was he sweaty or were they just pouring buckets of water on him because he was so fucking wet in this movie? He is kind of scruffy, kind of venal, kind of disgusting in this movie, but also kind of thick, kind of bad with it. I, I noticed that there's another movie in which you see him shirtless. I think it's Drunken Angel or something, and he is not as buff as he is in this movie. He is bulking up. He's looking kind of good, kind of bad. Yeah. <laughs> um, much like Rashomon and the unknowability of truth, uh, it's kind of hard to tell how hot Shirmafan is in this movie. I'll give it... <laughs> Um, I will, I will say a 9.3, which I rate in line. And that, that is also precisely what I gave him because he is looking pretty good, but he's also hella sweaty and he's got the crazy manic energy. That's like totally nuts, not appealing. He's crazy in the way that it's someone you want to get away from. Yeah. It's not hot. It's crazy in a way that unnerves you. Yeah, and like Drunken Angel, he's crazy in a very hot way. In this one, it's not. I wouldn't want to hang out with the guy. So, 9.3. I will say also, this is another um, comparison for the first time I watched it. The first time I watched it, I was like, I guess that's just how Toshiro Mifune is. Just totally, <laughs> completely nuts when he's acting. And then I watched every other <laughs> Akira Kraus stuff. I was like, he wait, what? <laughs> Coming off of Scandal, where he literally never smiles and paints paintings that we don't see. Yeah, in every other film, he is Mr. Too Damn Honorable, Mr. Too Damn Serious, Mr. Too Damn, like, hot, sexy, and cool, and, like, trying his best, but also having a hard time. In this movie, he's just totally nuts. It's to so different than everything else, and I, I love that. And it's a very cool role for him, and I'm, I'm glad he got to do it. It's a very cool role for him, and it's a very cool movie. I think this is just the one that you gotta watch. This is important for any cinema lover. There's a reason that this one put Kurosawa on the map, and there's a reason that it's still talked about 70 years later. It's a really important film. It's really good. It's also really short. Yeah, God bless. It's really efficient. It's a 90-minute film, and how much we've discussed in a film that has such a short running time... Our review is actually about as long as the movie. Our recording session goes longer than the film, and honestly, that's a good sign. That means that it's full of depth. There's a lot of great things in it. I do think in watching it, it suffers from a bit of overacting, and I really, really dislike the sword fights. I always have, every single time I've seen it, because I just, I get bored with them because they're not exciting to watch. Sometimes it feels like that's the point, but it doesn't make the point of not watching them exciting either. Yeah, it's just kind of like, some of them are a bit of a slug. Every single time, no matter how into it I am, I always tune out whenever they're fighting, because it's also that you know how it's going to end. Yeah. So at some points you do feel like, okay, this is repetitive because that's what it is. It's repetitive by nature, but it still manages to be really gripping and really entertaining. It's Kurosawa's best film so far. And honestly, the great thing about it is I still think that he has room to grow. I still think we will see him be better. Yeah, I'm excited to see it. I don't think that Rashomon is his best film. The highest rating I've given so far, giving him a 9 out of 10. Yeah, uh, I will do the same. That's my initial rating the first time I saw it, and I think I agree now, but for much different reasons. <laughs> Four and a half stars out of five. And I refuse to say, well, I guess I'm saying it now, nine out of ten, because I hate it when Tim uses the nine yeah, out of ten. And just wait system. until I edit that part in, and I don't edit the rest of it. 
this film was well received upon release, which is a thing that not everyone really knows. It kind of is assumed like no one liked it in Japan, but everyone liked it outside the West. No, people liked it in Japan. It just wasn't as big of a deal as when it suddenly got universal worldwide acclaim. It started playing revivals and things, and it became reinvigorated in itself. And honestly, probably people remembered it differently. Probably its own point. Yeah, I love the Japanese cinema audiences seeing the greatest film of all time being like, yeah, it's fine. I mean, that's the thing. When he was pitching this, it's like, how do you even describe what movie this is? There's so much to it. You could describe this entire movie and not talk about the plot. <laughs> Maybe that's what we should have So I'd also like to read Akira Kurosawa's explanation for Rashomon as well. And this is one that he gave to his assistant directors during the filming because they just didn't get it. And he says, Human beings are unable to be honest with themselves about themselves. They cannot talk about themselves without embellishing. This script portrays such human beings, the kind that cannot survive without lies to make them feel they are better people than they really are. It even shows that sinful need for flattering falsehood goes beyond the grave. Even the character who dies cannot give up his lies when he speaks to the living through a medium. Egoism is the sin the human being carries with him from birth. It is the most difficult to redeem. This film is like a strange picture scroll that is unrolled and displayed by the ego. You say that you cannot understand the script at all, but that is because the human heart itself is impossible to understand. If you focus on the impossibility of truly understanding human psychology and read the script one more time, I think you will grasp the point of it. There's a lot of crazy, incredible stuff here. And a lot of crazy, incredible stuff in the future. And a really weird one coming up. But not next time, because next time's the idiot. <laughs> yes. And listener, we will see if I read 300 pages by next week. <laughs> Yep, it is time for Chris's book report. Yeah. Because he has been reading Dostoevsky's The Idiot this entire time, and yet has managed to yeah. put off most of the reading. Yeah, we will see. Who could have seen that coming? Much like maybe the discussion of fate and Rashomon, it was bound to happen, or it was I was doomed to happen. It was inevitable. <laughs> it was unavoidable. The Idiot is a troubled film in his filmography and is really recognized as a major misstep. But Dostoevsky is one of Kurosawa's favorite authors, and the film has another incredible cast and has a lot of really great stuff in it. It's a matter of seeing how well the whole comes together. And so I'm excited to give it a rewatch, and I'm excited for you to tell me how closely it adheres to the text, given that it was uh, transposed to Japan. That'll be really cool to talk about. Yeah, I'm excited to tell you too. No, uh, we, will, we will get to that. Yeah, maybe we'll add something to another eyes like Lester film, but we'll see. I can tell you that you probably might understand it better than I did, because I was like reading the wiki, being like, what is happening? And, and you'll see why. And we'll talk about it next week. <laughs> <laughs>